The following audio drama is rated R for rockin'. You can be sure that everything you wanted to see when you're a teenager is here. Just tantalizingly out of reach if you're under 17 or 18 years old. This is Joshua Wise, creator, writer, and editor of Weeping Cedars, which is a slow-moving supernatural horror series set in the fictional town of Weeping Cedars in northern Hamilton County, New York. Our series is told through an ongoing documentary from the Weeping Cedars Historical Society and reports from the local news station KWPN. The episode we've selected is the first episode of Season 2 entitled Econdeset Games, which ties together real history with the history of our town. Thank you for listening. In 1981, six small businesses were opened in Weeping Cedars. A hardware store named Carl's Homewares was established on Stevens Street. A small electronics store called Volts for Volks both opened and closed in the same year. A pet grooming business was started by a woman named Julie Foreman that was, from what we can glean, so successful that three years later she moved her business to the city and still has a fairly substantial business all these years later. Two mail-order businesses were created by the same man, Kenneth Yanders, one for do-it-yourself models and one for more adult-oriented materials. The sixth business was a small computer software company that named itself Econdeset Games. The small company founded by Charles Towers and Ernie Kilgore took up residence on Javelin Avenue and started making text adventure games. Having only four employees, they still found moderate success going up against big names like Infocom in the early 80s. But in the year 1986, both founders of the company would go missing. The company would go into default on its one outstanding loan, and the computers used to make its games would be packed in boxes and stored in the basement of the storefront they had rented on Javelin Avenue. It wouldn't be until 2019 that the boxes and the company's last game, entitled The Hidden Gate, A Weeping Cedar's Story, would see the light of day again. And that game, unpolished and incomplete, which was released to the public last year, has led some to question whether the last text adventure from Condeset Games was really a warning in disguise. This is Weeping Cedars, a weekly documentary about the history of a small town in northern Hamilton County, New York. We are telling its story week by week from the archives of the Weeping Cedars Historical Society. Our show is presented by Claire Emerson, Mackenzie Forrester, Kay Millport, and me, Lee Mitchell. When Lee mentioned the Condorcet Games to me, I was unaware of what a text adventure was. And of course, so were they. It was a little before their time. So we did some research, and we went back into the early days of the precursor to the internet, to an interconnected world of computers that began in 1969 and lasted until 1990, 
called the Advanced Research Projects Agency Network, or ARPANET. ARPANET was a network that started with four computer sites and grew to include over 100 military, university and corporate locations. This relatively small but important precursor to our modern internet played a big part in the creation of the computer games known as text adventures. In the early 1970s, a man named Will Crowther, working for a company called BBN, helped develop an important piece of technology called an IMP, which is something like a modern-day computer router. Crowther, aside from being one of the technological founders of our current internet age, was an avid spelunker. After a divorce, he spent his time developing a kind of amusing adventure in text for his daughters to play with when they visited. It was one of the first text adventures which he wrote in a language called Fortran on a machine called the PDP-10 computer. In 1975, Crowther released the game to the public, which generally meant that anyone on the ARPANET could play it. The game, known as Colossal Cave Adventure, was discovered by Don Woods, a graduate student at Stanford who played it and imagined how he could improve it. Woods contacted Crowther and asked if he could extend the game, which Crowther agreed to. Woods' version of the game included things like puzzles, trolls, and magic words like zizzy. He had transformed a simple, if revolutionary, cave exploration experience into a fantasy game inspired heavily by the works of J.R.R. Tolkien and the game Dungeons and Dragons created by Gary Gygax and Dave Arneson. Woods put the game out on the ARPANET once more, and it was found by a group of friends who were students at MIT and NYU. They played Colossal Cave Adventure and, though they loved it, they thought they could do better. So they created their own parser, a program that takes in typed text and interprets it into different commands for a computer program. With this, they made a new, very large game. It was so big, a huge one megabyte, that when they wanted to sell the game commercially, they had to develop a way of shrinking the code and then they still had to break it into three games. They called their new game Dungeon, and it was very similar to the already existing board game by the same name. Players went through many subterranean rooms collecting treasure. Unlike the board game by TSR, combat was rare in the computer game Dungeon. Instead, the player was challenged by a series of puzzles involving bejeweled eggs, bells, blow-up rafts, and a flood control dam. But despite this key difference, the programmers and new authors from MIT and NYU received a letter from TSR telling them that they were in breach of copyright. So they decided to rename the game. They used a word that was common MIT jargon for an unfinished computer program, and they dubbed their new game Zork. Zork was a behemoth in the early days of personal computers. Programmed, like Colossal Cave, on the PDP-10 mainframe computer, it was distributed to people who were putting together their own computers from starter kits and buying new, mass-produced computers like the Apple II. The game, split into three parts, was released by the newly formed Infocom, the unrivaled king of text adventure games. And, after Zork, many other game companies formed to produce an art form that has been variously known as CFS, computerized fantasy simulation, interactive fiction, and simply text adventures. But before those other companies, inspired by Infocom, who had been inspired by Don Woods, who had been inspired by Will Crowther, who had been inspired by Mammoth Caves, before those companies formed, 
a 20-year-old young man bought his copy of Zork in October of 1980 and brought it home to play on his Atari 800. Charles Towers, or Chuck as his friends knew him, spent weeks mapping out the dungeons underneath the White House that has greeted players of Zork for over 40 years. He drew the dungeons on graph paper, connecting rooms with little lines that sometimes had the letters U or D next to them, to indicate that he might have to go up or down to get to the rooms, and wrote in the names of the items that he found in the game's locations. Chuck shared the game with his longtime friend, Ernie Kilgore, who was equally enthralled. Ernie didn't want to see Chuck's maps. That's Brian Kilgore, Ernie's older brother, who agreed to talk to us about the early days of Econdesit Games. Brian worked part-time for the company as their accountant and was involved from the beginning. Ernie, Ernie wanted to solve the puzzles for himself. And when he came up against something he couldn't figure out, he'd go to Chuck and they'd talk it out. I asked Brian if he got involved in the game, or, if being older, he found it childish. Sure, I got involved. It was amazing. But honestly, I wasn't very good at it. I was, and am, a numbers guy. <laughs> That's why I like D&D so much. There was some really crunchy number stuff there that I could, I could get my head around. But with Zork, everything was calculated for you. Still, I thought the whole thing was awesome. Something about flood control dam number three always made me feel like I was somewhere. I don't know, like somewhere different than the fantasy I was reading back then. <laughs> You're not going to find flood control dam number three in Robert E. Howard. Douglas Adams, sure, maybe Piers Anthony, but I hadn't gotten to them yet. I was deep in the serious stuff. Tolkien, Howard, Vance, yeah, guys like that. Brian, Ernie and Chuck talked about the game and were, as Brian put it, over the moon when they saw that a sequel was coming out the next year. We, and I mean mostly Ernie and Chuck, yeah, we couldn't get enough of it. And and they, they even signed up for the mailing list. It was um, the, the, the using group. I, I think that's what it was called. Brian was close. It was called the Zork Users Group, or Zug, and it was a kind of club for true fans of Infocom Zork games. They distributed maps, hint guides, and even bumper stickers for fans before Infocom brought the whole process in-house. The group produced beautiful and elaborate pieces of art that doubled as guides for the game, and many of these items now go for hundreds of dollars on sites like eBay. We asked Brian about Ernie's maps, and he pulled several out of storage for us. You can see here, he, he put them into folders, his own maps and the ones from the mailing list. I don't think they ever told him anything he didn't already know, but he really loved them. The love was so strong that before long, Chuck and Ernie were mapping out their own imaginary games. Ernie had just graduated with a computer science degree from NYU, and started to dabble in creating his own parser and interpreter. Chuck, on the other hand, was working on the puzzles for their new game ideas. Of the two of them, Chuck was definitely the one more interested in puzzles. He was always playing with riddle books, Rubik's Cubes, crosswords, things like that. That's Shannon Mills, Nee Towers. Shannon is Chuck's twin sister. I remember he took apart a radio he'd been given for Christmas. He couldn't put the thing back together. So Mom was upset with him, but I think secretly she was proud of Chuck being so smart. It was tough on him, though, because he could always pick things apart before anyone else, and our father insisted that he go to college for business instead of something that might have interested him more. I asked Shannon what that might have been, and she said, Well, you know, something where you could use that kind of talent. I guess I'm not really sure what that would have been. 
I guess, except maybe the job that he ended up making for himself with his business degree. So I guess he actually did pretty well in the end. That's because, late in 1981, Chuck and Ernie, having put together a small prototype of their first game, a fantasy puzzle adventure called Gloody, acquired a loan from First Cedars Trust and opened Econdesic Games. They worked on Gloody for the next six months, perfecting their software, and as Brian put it, squashing bugs. They commissioned box art from local artist Trent Moore and bought ads in the back of computer and fantasy magazines. And in the same year that Zork III, the Dungeon Master, the final installment of the game that started their obsession with text adventures rolled out, a Candacet Games sold their first copies of Gloody. Gloody immediately started selling well. Local newspaper reviewer Tom Macon wrote, Gloody is a great time for fans of the fantasy romp Zork. While the game clearly takes its inspiration from Infocom's already classic adventure, it introduces new and exciting environments for players to explore. I especially appreciated The Wizard's Tower. A year later, Econdesic Games released its first sequel to Gloody, Gloody 2, Into the Dark City. Another financial success, the company hired two more programmers, Aaron Fiorenza and Luke Breyer. They completed their trilogy with Gloody 3, The Dark Library, in 1984. The last game reviewed well and sold better than the other entries. Econdesic Games, while it was no Infocom, was turning into a profitable gaming company. However, instead of following up with another game in 1985, the company went silent for a year. And then, in early 1986, they released a one-page ad in several computer magazines. The ad showed a black-and-white picture of a dark street. At the top of the page, in a font that was probably meant to evoke the idea of dripping blood, are the words, from the makers of Gloody. The bottom third of the page is the name of the game, The Hidden Gate, A Weeping Cedar Story. The game was scheduled to come out in October of 1986, but with the exception of the people who worked on it, no one would see anything of The Hidden Gate until 2019. If you like Weeping Studios and want to show your support, there are a few ways you can help. Please rate us and leave a review on sites like iTunes, Podchaser, and Stitcher. These reviews and ratings help make our show more visible to people who don't know about it yet. If you'd like some more content, including the first season of Laughing Cedars and monthly updates from the show's creator about production, story, and more, then head over to patreon.com slash weepingcedars where you can get access to all of that for $2 a month. And, of course, if you know someone who you think might like our show, please let them know. Word of mouth is one of the best ways a podcast can spread. And no matter what you do, we're deliriously happy that you're listening to our series. Thanks for joining us on our journey through Northern Hamilton County. Four months before their next game was scheduled to be released, the founders of Econdesic Games disappeared. The company's employees came into work on Monday, received a very brief message on the answering machine that seemed to be from Chuck, and then heard nothing more from their bosses. Econdesic Games employees filed missing person reports on Tuesday, June 16, after neither founder appeared for work nor answered their home phones. Both of their homes were searched. The paper reported that the police found signs that both men had packed up clothing and left their homes in a calm and organised manner. The police kept an eye out for Ernie and Chuck, but at least from what we've been told, 
If two grown men want to pack up and leave town, they aren't going to send out the bloodhounds. They hadn't broken any laws, and there was no sign that either man had been harmed. Instead, according to one person we talked to off the record, there was a suspicion that perhaps the two men had found each other more interesting than their business. And in 1986, a little northern town, like Weeping Cedars, wasn't going to be particularly understanding of such an arrangement. No one who actually knew Chuck and Ernie thought that that was a good explanation for the two men's disappearance, though Brian told us that they had often talked about the possibility of moving the company to the West Coast where other video game companies were located. So, well, maybe, because if eloping was on their minds, at least back then, San Francisco might have been a good fit for both a gaming company and a less than traditional relationship. But still, when Lee suggested this to Brian, his reaction was pretty telling. <laughs> oh. Oh, boy, I wish. I only wish that's what happened. But I don't think so. It's worth saying now that neither Chuck nor Ernie were ever heard from again. They weren't found hiding out in San Francisco or Canada or Mexico, and there aren't any stories of them resurfacing somewhere south of the equator. Instead, a Friday in May of 1986 was the very last time anyone in Weeping Cedars ever saw the two men. Their company had the funds to run for a few more months, but the team had very little direction and they couldn't continue on with making their game, as the design documents had gone missing with the company's founders. Then, without the return of its leadership, it simply closed up shop, its last game unfinished. The landlord who owned the location on Javelin Avenue claimed the computers and furniture as the last two months' rent, and the people who had worked for Akandasite Games closed the doors behind them. It wasn't until 33 years later that the computers and files from Akandasite Games were discovered. We were cleaning out the basement of the shop, trying to make room for some materials that we needed to store when we came across the old computers. I'm a big tech nerd, so I thought I'd see if they still ran. That's Jordan Tillman. He and his wife, Kara, run a lovely home decorating service. They started their home decoration business last year, and when they powered on a couple of the computers, Jordan found something that looked familiar. It was the kind of program my dad had played when I was really young. I remember sitting next to him, and he would read off the text to me and ask me what I thought he should do next. He'd try all sorts of things that I said, and every now and then I'd actually suggest something that he could do. Most of the time, however, I'd suggest something stupid like putting a blow-up raft inside of a jewel-encrusted egg. That, apparently, is a Zork reference. Fueled by nostalgia and curiosity, Jordan figured out how to transfer the files from the old computer onto a modern drive and run them with some free software. He handed the newly compiled files over to the township of Weeping Cedars, and they released the game to the public for about two months. Then, for some reason, they took it down. And though we've asked several people, no one can tell us why. Before they took it down, however, Mr. Kleiber insisted that the Historical Society download it and store it as part of the archives. And that's what Lee and Riley did. So we've all gotten to play that unfinished version of The Hidden Gate, A Weeping Cedar Story. And honestly, there's not much there. You can go from location to location, most of which are in downtown Weeping Cedars, Though you start in a professor's office at a Candesec college. Mostly, it's recognizably the same downtown area with a few different shops, including an old arcade that is kind of neat to walk around and look at the different games. 
And I want to be clear, by look at, I mean read a one or two line description of. But that's mostly it. You can walk around and look at things and have them described to you. There's a couple of small puzzles, but their payoff is pretty limited. Or at least that's what we thought when we each played it the first time around. But then, when Mackenzie played it, she pointed out something that we're not really sure how to interpret. One of the locations in the game is outside of the Weeping Cedar Town Hall. And Mackenzie said, Well, at least in the game I can see the old seal on the side of the town hall. And that made us pause. We paused because there was a lot of vandalism last year in Weeping Cedars. We've been listening back to some of the news from the end of last year, and there was a whole streak of stuff getting destroyed in town. Lee asked what else there might be that you could still see in the game that wasn't around anymore. There is, of course, the arcade, but that's been gone for over 20 years. But there were two other locations in the game that you could visit that were either damaged or destroyed last year that are both in the game. The first is the War Memorial. The second is the Weeping Cedars Library. Now, the Weeping Cedars Library didn't get destroyed last year, and neither did the War Memorial but both were badly damaged. The war memorial was vandalized, and many of the stones that were inlaid in the earth were pulled up. In the library, there was a fire in the rare book section. If you go to the library in the game, there are three exits from the main room. There's a door leading out to Carter's Way, there's a stairway leading down to the basement, and there's a door that goes back into the rare books room. If you try this door, you get a message. This door is locked. You'll have to find a key. We asked Jordan if this meant that there was probably a key hidden somewhere in the game. Well, it probably means that there was supposed to be one. You usually don't put doors in these games unless you want people to go through them. Otherwise, people will bang their head against a puzzle that doesn't exist, and then they just end up frustrated. So that means that in the final game, the player was supposed to be able to get back into the rare books room of the library, a place that most people in Weeping Cedars weren't even aware existed until a fire destroyed it last year. And when you go to the War Memorial for the first time, you get the following description. This is the Weeping Cedars War Memorial. The obelisk here lists the names of the local people who gave their lives in four wars. There are stone slabs laid into the earth here as well. This wasn't particularly strange to us until, once again, we asked Jordan about it. And he asked whether we had brought the shovel to the war memorial and dug there. We said, of course not. Why would we do that? Jordan explained that in games like The Hidden Gate, if a player found a shovel, they would usually try to dig everywhere they could. He had found the shovel and dug around in the game. We also had found that shovel outside the church in the graveyard. We tried digging in every room in the game, and only one gave us a result. The War Memorial. When you dig there, you get the following message. You pry one stone up and dig under it until your shovel hits something metal. You soon uncover a metal box. But there's no box to take in the hole or anywhere else in the unfinished adventure, and nothing else happens at the War Memorial no matter what you do. So, what does all this mean? Is it all a coincidence? There are, of course, other locations in the game, places that aren't associated with the vandalism from last year. And of course, we don't know what the rest of the game would have looked like, 
the design documents for it were never found. There is one other thing in the game that seems to point to something larger, and it's something we're going to return to later this season. The answering machine message that the Econdeset Games employees found when they got in on the Monday that neither Chuck or Ernie showed up was a little garbled and hard to transcribe. We tried to get our hands on that tape from the Sheriff's Department, but they claimed to not have it anymore. The police report that we read, however, transcribed the message as, I'm going to, then something unclear, then Cole will know. And then, after some more that couldn't be transcribed, just the circle. Two things are worth noting here. First, the name Cole is odd. There was a radio jockey named Tom Cole who worked at KWPN in the 80s and was reported missing during a hiking vacation in Vermont around the same time. The second is the opening line to the game that Chuck and Ernie left unfinished. It reads, The circle is trying to open the gate. You must stop them. When we first started looking into Akondaset games, we didn't think there would be so many connections to things that we were just on the cusp of discovering. For a moment in the mid-80s, this company and its founders intersect with several other points of interest. We haven't talked about all of them in this episode because, honestly, there was a lot to sort through. We'll be coming back to some of this later in the season. But the thing we want to point to, especially clearly, is that we see a significant similarity between the story of Chuck and Ernie and what happened to Riley. And that's why we've let off with this long episode this season. We think that if we can untangle this piece of the puzzle, we could find out what happened to Riley. And maybe, just maybe, we can do it before it's too late. Next week, we're going to try to start untangling another big foundational piece of the Weeping Cedars puzzle by returning to an old storybook and looking into another myth that seems to haunt the dreams of this small town. When we look into the legend of the chained man. That's next week on Weeping Cedars. This episode of Weeping Cedars stars Sarah Jane Bradbury as Mackenzie Forrester, Christine Salazi as Claire Emerson, Laurel Johnson as Lee Mitchell, and Narinda Pennington as Kay Millport. Our supporting cast this week features Matthew Curtis as Brian Kilgore, Steve Rimpici as Jordan Tillman, and Ellen Williams as Shannon Mills. This episode features the Weeping Cedars theme by Sebastian Gottlieb, Earthwork by Hinterheim, and Soulagement by Demoiselle Donner. Weeping Cedars is written, produced, directed, and edited by Joshua Wise. You can find us at allportsopen.com slash weepingcedars.